0: In this episode of the podcast, we discuss the regulation of therapeutic goods and medical devices. It's quite a timely episode because we're still in the middle of a health pandemic. How our laws react to and support advances in medical technology and science is critically important for the well-being of everyone. I'm really privileged that I was joined by an expert in this area, and I hope that you'll enjoy the podcast as well. Joining me today on the podcast is Dr. Marco Rizzi, who is an Associate Professor and Deputy Head of the University of Western Australia's Law School. His research focuses on the protection of health and safety and the relationship between law, politics and the market. Marco has a PhD in Law and a Master's Degree in Comparative Law from the European University Institute in Italy. He has a Master's Degree in Civil Law from the University of Pisa, Marco has filled many positions at the University of Western Australia, including as a member of its uh, Human Research Ethics Committee, uh, an academic conduct advisor, and a senior lecturer. Before that, he worked at the University of Seychelles. In September 2022, earlier this year, Marco was awarded a Research Award for Early Career Researcher by the University of Western Australia's Law School and a commendation award in research impact innovation. Uh, by the University of Western Australia's School for Social Sciences. Hello, Buongiorno, and welcome, Marco.
1: Hello, Buongiorno. <laughs> Sorry, for
0: that's having... the that's the limit of my Italian. I'm not going to try and speak any after that. I'll just embarrass myself terribly. Yeah. <laughs> how, how many how many languages can you speak? Just out of interest.
1: Um, so Italian and French uh, as mother tongues. English, bit of uh, Spanish, bit of German.
0: You know, th- this is the thing, Kiwis and Aussies are just kind of so limited. I mean, uh, you know, if we're lucky, we've, we've, we've kind of almost got a, a, a conversational, um, grasp of English. Um, but beyond, <laughs> <laughs> beyond that, there's not much, uh, happening there. Um, I mean, I've tried very hard to learn Spanish and I mean, I can certainly hold a conversation in Espanol to a limited degree, but, uh, that, that's, that's the limit. I, it always, Impresses and amazes me when I'm in Europe and I, I meet Europeans and uh, they can speak, uh, you know, five, six, seven languages. It's uh, very impressive.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a uh, luck of the draw where you were born kind of determines that a little bit.
0: Well, it but, does, you know, it does. But also having, you know, the interest and, and the desire yeah. to learn other languages. I mean, I think it's a, a great, a great thing to do. Anyway, we're going to talk about health law, but in particular, we're going to talk about. Um, law relating to um, therapeutic uh products etc and one of the first things i wanted to ask you about um uh with with this because I'm, I'm super interested in this is you know what is actually a therapeutic good
1: yeah thanks thanks chris thanks for having me uh also thank you for the Thank you for the promotion. Uh, I'm, I'm associate professor for the moment, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but, uh, certainly aspire to professorship one day. Um, in terms of, um, your question, so therapeutic goods uh, in Australia, we have this, um, legislation called the Therapeutic Goods Act. And then we have a therapeutic goods administration, which is an independent. Uh, agency that oversees the, the regulation of these goods. So what are they? Essentially, any product that um, has an intended therapeutic effect or that is used for the treatment, the diagnosis, the prevention, the monitoring of health conditions. And uh, I think what is interesting about the Australian context is that it is quite unique in um, using a generic, like, overarching definition, Normally, what you have is like, for instance, in Europe, you have the European Medicines Agency. Right. I believe in New Zealand you have Pharmac, which is also uh, so uh, focused on pharmaceuticals pre- uh, prevalently. Um, in the United States, is the Food and Drug Administration. So again, like the, the emphasis on drugs. Uh, although the Food and Drug Administration also looks at medical devices. What we have in Australia is an attempt to basically bring every good that has this intended therapeutic use under one big umbrella. And that is, uh, where this term therapeutic goods comes from. What it means, in fact, is therapeutic goods tend to be medical devices, pharmaceuticals, including vaccines. So these are the two, the two big families of therapeutic goods.
0: Okay, so, um, like if I go to, to the chemist warehouse, for example, um, you know, obviously anything that, that requires a prescription is going to fit into that sort of classic, it's a drug, it's for therapeutic use. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes the line isn't particularly clear, um, uh, a, a, as to whether something is being you know, produced or promoted for therapeutic use. I, maybe a, a, an example that's just sprung to mind is, um, you know, late at night, I'm working, you know, to get some submissions out uh, that are due the next day and um, feeling a little bit tired. So, you know, I might, uh, might crack open a can of Red Bull, um, full of caffeine and, 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 and other chemicals. I mean, do, would that be, would that fit into the category of being a therapeutic good?
1: Well, I mean, it, it, it... <laughs> probably it should but no red bull is not regulated as a therapeutic good um it is it, it it probably falls under the more the 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 lesser category of like supplements right um so but it is true that when you walk into a chemist warehouse you are obviously uh, you have a a wide range of choice of therapeutic goods so the most uh the the most heavily regulated ones are the ones you would call prescription drugs typically yeah. prescription drugs are the ones that can only be dispensed with a um a physician's prescription um whereas you also have lots of uh, over the counter drugs so, so for instance ibuprofen or panadol like the stuff that we you know um use quite frequently aspirin etc all of that is um all of these are therapeutic goods. They are they are regulated. Uh, however, they are considered to be uh, safe for uh, consumption uh, without uh, a physician's direction. Okay, so the, so basically, what um, determines essentially whether a, a medicine will be a prescription? Medicine or, or, or over the counter is the degree of risk that is associated with consumption. So certain drugs, so no, every pharmaceutical that is, uh, that has ever been produced, um, carries a certain degree of risk. So it is impossible to have drugs or medicines that are completely risk free. Now, depending on the risk profile, so, what the adverse the potential adverse event is, how frequent the adverse event may be, then um regulators can make the decision to make the drug or the medicine prescription only or over the counter okay so that's that's a little bit how the the system works in 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 a nutshell
0: okay, so do I understand that you know as part of the, the the therapeutic goods administration um, and, and the, the body that, that the, the TGA that's administering it that they're undertaking uh, every time there is a, a therapeutic good that is you know being produced in Australia um, or being brought into the country they're looking at it to say um, you know what's the risk profile with this product and and, and then where does that fit in the categories of uh, or categorising that particular product is 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 that the the approach that's taken?
1: Yes. So the, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, if you if you if you look their uh, the legislative framework that they operate under, uh, they basically take what's called a risk based approach to regulation. Yep. Risk right. based a risk based approach to regulation means so you can have different types of approach. Um, there's more conservative ones like precautionary precautionary approach means that essentially if there is if there is the potential for you know um, harm you you just take action you take preventative action of mm-hmm. course a precautionary approach to risk in the realm of therapeutic goods doesn't work because um if you're going to be precautionary as as a as a general kind of guiding principle well you're never going to have innovation mm-hmm. so uh, a risk based approach emphasizes that and beyond, behind every decision to uh, authorize a certain product for, um, you know, rollout or consumption in the market, uh, or to allow physicians to prescribe it, uh, there is a an underpinning cost benefit analysis, essentially, so or risk risk utility analysis, and where the Therapeutic goods, the regulators are satisfied mm. that the benefits outweigh the risk. They will approve the product for, uh, um, marketing and for, um, distribution. So what that now the mm. mechanism that is followed, the, the, the more granular mechanism that is followed is quite different depending on the type of therapeutic goods. So pharmaceuticals, including vaccines, follow certain type of uh, review. Medical devices follow a different type of review. And then there's the additional layer of complication that is um, whether the product is produced uh, domestically or imported. Right. Now, the reality is that a country like Australia, and I believe New Zealand is similar in this sense, um, does not have a huge domestic industry. So There is not a whole lot of production and, and, and development that, uh, and product development that happens domestically. The vast majority of therapeutic goods that are, um, distributed in Australia are imported. So you need to have parallel kind of regulatory mechanisms. One is for what happens when, you know, something is produced, uh, in-house. And some and a different type of review for a product that is uh, that has been produced elsewhere and that is being imported
0: okay, so um where would um like licensed manufacturing sit into that equation? You've got a, a pharmaceutical company sitting in let's just say in Perth and western Australia, and it's producing uh medicines but under license from uh, an overseas company where Where would that sit?
1: Well I think so so by license do you mean the intellectual property regime
0: or Yeah for example the patent so they, they there may be a um, a therapeutic uh, medicine that uh, an Australian company hasn't developed themselves so they haven't gone through that developmental pathway uh, in Australia but rather what they're just simply doing is they're manufacturing it mm. under license of which is held by by an overseas pharmaceutical company Yeah
1: So mm. Uh, I, it's important to to, to um, keep the two regimes separate. So um, intellectual property licensing and all that operates at one level, and that has mm-hmm. th- that basically operates at the level of guaranteeing um, intellectual property rights of developers and, and and manufacturers. So you don't, and and this was particularly this was a big thing with the COVID vaccines, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you. The idea is if you hold the, the, the patent, if you hold intellectual property rights over a certain, the design of a, of a certain drug, what you yeah. don't want is others to replicate that uh, particular therapeutic good without essentially either paying you or without, you know, some kind of agreement that guarantees your intellectual property rights. Now, whether that is whether that is desirable or not is one question. But setting that aside for a second, what the TGA does is very different. So regardless of that intellectual property regime, if you want to market a product, whether or not you hold the patent or whether you're producing it, uh, you know, your license to produce something that has been invented by someone else, you still have to undergo the testing and you still have to undergo the review by the TGA. So what the TGA looks at uh, it's not, it has nothing to do with uh, intellectual property. Right. It has to do with safety and efficacy. So, okay, the- so,
0: so can I just jump in here? Yeah. Cause, cause I want to be clear on this. It, 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 whether a local pharmaceutical company has developed a product themselves or they're simply manufacturing it. Um, um, a, a drug that's actually being developed by an overseas company—it makes no difference. The, the testing still needs to be undertaken. Is that—is that, is that so, the position? yeah yes. Compared to, for example, if the pharmaceutical company was just an importer, like they were just literally importing the, 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 the therapeutic product into Australia, it makes so, no difference.
1: So, okay, um, no, no, that's a, that's a good that's a good question. So. Here is the, let let me break it down uh, into digestible pieces. So what the TGA does is it um, authorizes a certain product for distribution. That has to happen anyway, okay? So whether the product is imported, developed uh, domestically, invented domestically, or produced under license domestically, that doesn't matter. If you wanna distribute like a therapeutic good, a medicine, it has to be authorised by the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which means that the Therapeutic Goods Administration needs to be satisfied that it is both safe and effective. Yeah. Uh, we can talk about how...
0: The process you know, here, yeah, we, we can that, get that into that, that, that later. But,
1: yeah. But, but, yeah. But, but first, let me just uh, explain this. So there is the issue, the risk, of course, is that if you, say, an American manufacturer or a European manufacturer wants to sell their... um drugs in Australia, which happens all the time. Like, actually, the vast majority of the drugs that we consume in Australasia are not um, designed and developed in in Australasia. Um, What happens is that typically the Therapeutics Administration will, and and the the sponsor, so the the company that wants to have that product registered, will normally um, provide the TGA with approvals, from overseas companies, so the TGA will be aware of the fact that a certain product has been approved, say, by the American Food and Drug Administration or by the European Medicines Agency or the Japanese uh, regulator, etc. Yeah, and that can can speed up the review in a way. Uh, or it gives at least a a, a starting point uh, where you can. But but nevertheless, for medicines in particular, and this is where there is a bit of a divide between medicines and medical devices. Mm. For medicines, the therapeutic good still has to undergo an independent still has to perform an independent review. So again, the COVID vaccines is is a good example. So Australia approved the COVID vaccines later. Uh, than uh, the United States FDA, the UK MHRA, or the European uh, Medicines Agency. It was. It happened afterwards.
0: Okay. Can I can I just stop you there, yep. Marco? Just um, because one thing that, I, that you've raised, which jumps a question out to me, is to what extent is the um, is the is the TGA influenced by the by by an organisation like the American FDA? Um, where, where the American FDA have, have certified a, a, you know, a therapeutic good or a medicine as being fit for, um, for, for use. Uh, is, does, does that play a, play a role in any way? Because it it seems to me that, um, shouldn't we have some confidence that if the FDA are approving something, then it must be safe?
1: Mm. Certainly, um, regulatory um, authorities across the world do not operate in a vacuum so there are networks um, and uh, bilateral agreements between uh between regulators particularly so for example the TGA the, FD, the FDA or the European Medicines Agency they are there is a constant there is a constant interaction because the idea is you. What you don't want to do is you don't want to rep, you don't want to duplicate efforts. You don't want to kind of reinvent the wheel at every point in time. I think. So, so there, is there some some level of influence? I would say. Uh, more than the FDA influencing the decisions of the TGA, it's, it is more the case that the, these regulators all operate in a sort of coordinated way to an extent, particularly when it comes to, um, drugs that are globally distributed. So it does, does it have a, does it have an influence? Certainly it does, because it does mean that a one, a regulator has kind of gone through the steps, uh, that are required to be satisfied that a certain product is safe and effective. That does not mean, however, that uh, it, it automatically translates, because the regulatory uh, frameworks aren't exactly the same. There are levels of risk. So the United States traditionally is a little bit more risk, uh, has, a, has a bit more of a propensity to risk compared to, for example, the European one. So – which is why certainly it does have it does mean that you're not starting from scratch when um another regular regulator has already performed a review but you still conduct an independent review of okay, the, the yeah, data
0: yeah because i mean from my perspective and i and i know this is very much uh, a naive one because it's this, this isn't my area of expertise but more as a consumer of you know medicines and and I mean I've had uh three shots of, of the vaccine and um getting ready for my fourth one is <laughs> yeah. coming up soon um is that I, I i did sort of stand back and think to myself you know this pandemic has created a a, a very unique um moment in time where uh there was a, a an absolute risk to uh, the health and well-being of the entire planet okay, without being overly dramatic, okay. And uh, the uh, the miracle of science was that within a short period of time, um, a, a handful of the pharmaceutical companies produced a vaccine, like quite quickly, you know, this RNDA vaccine. Mm-hmm. But then it had to go through regulatory approval um, in all of the countries it was going to be rolled out at, you know, which included Australia and New Zealand, because that, that had to happen before people got shots in arms. But, um, here I was, uh, sort of, uh, in locked down, um, borders closed New Zealand, uh, going, well, we're really lucky because we, we've managed to eliminate COVID, mm. but we can't, we, we can't eliminate it forever. Like we, we can't keep our borders closed and expect that it's not going to happen. So we need a vaccine rollout and we've got to have it, you know, reasonably quickly. But there was this delay occurring and I, and it, it made me wonder why are we waiting for, um, like, Why would New Zealand, or even if we take Australia, why would we think that we've got smarter people, okay, who can look at this vaccine and assess the risks at a higher level than the the most powerful economic nation on the planet that has some of the brightest medical minds uh, on the globe who have gone through it, presumably, and this is the assumption, the FDA have gone through it with a a fine-tooth comb, before they start injecting, you know, 385 million, you know, um, mm. uh, Americans with, with it in a country where if they get it wrong, the consequences can be horrific from a legal point of view, putting aside the, the, the social and the, and the health point of view. So, so why is it that, that New Zealand and Australia feel that, that we need to go through and, and, and check these things? You know, what, what's, what, what am I missing?
1: Yeah. So th- this is a, a
0: small question. Um, <laughs> no, no, sorry. That went on for quite a while to make. No, no, no. Guess, like, what, what, why a, can't we just rub a stamp no, the, but the FDA? You know, if it's FDA approved, it's fine. Let's all, all get it in us.
1: It's a fair point. Um, so, uh, okay, let me preface this by saying uh, the approval of COVID vaccine, that was an emergency situation, so it's not yeah. what normally happens, right? So your normal situation is, I don't know, you, you you develop a new antidepressant or a new anticoagulant or a new, I don't know, anti-diabetes drug, and, you know, it takes a certain amount of time. It takes a certain, uh, normally, years, and uh, eventually uh, it gets on the market and you can try to have bilateral agreements to recognize tests, for example, clinical trials that are, you know, uh, performed abroad instead of having to do them all domestically. But anyway, to answer your question uh, about the COVID vaccines specifically,
0: or, in fact, in fact any um, approval. Why, why why, couldn't we have a system where if it's approved by the FDA, then that's fine. You know, we don't because, need to go through this regulatory.
1: Because not every country has the same thresholds and not every country accepts the same trade-offs between, for example, um, speediness of um, uh, availability versus uh, safety uh not every country is com- perfectly comparable when it comes to for instance the overall regulatory system so you talk about the FDA so the FDA uh is arguably a little bit more uh, prone to uh approve products uh, on a slightly lesser uh, risk utility um, uh, evaluation. So the, the 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 level of risk that is accepted is a little bit higher. Okay. Part of this is linked to the fact that the United States as a if you look at the overall regulatory regime so not just the front end the tests that you need to undertake and the hoops you need to go through before you yeah. put the product on the market but you look at it holistically so you look for instance at the remedies available and the courses mm-hmm. of action available the united states tends to have an entrepreneurial class of litigators that put together big class actions yeah. that type of uh, back end Uh, watchdog is an integral part to the overall regulatory model, which prompts the U.S. sometimes to make decisions on a risk utility analysis that is different to the one that, for example, you would have in Europe, where access to courts and litigation is not at all as easy as um, incentivized, Um, Class actions aren't really available, for example. And the problem is with therapeutic goods, you really need class actions because it's very hard for an individual to say, this particular product caused me this particular harm. It is much easier to, if you aggregate a class, to say, look, at there's a pattern. of These people uh, have all taken the drugs under certain circumstances and compared to, like, you know, the general population, the incidence of, say, heart failure, increases by a certain percentage. Therefore, you can make the inference that the adverse event is linked to the drug. But you need to aggregate claims in order to do that. So the U.S. It's
0: it's one of those classic areas where why class actions work, because an individual is not going going to have the resources to be able to uh, assert their rights. And it is that grouping that enables the class action regime to work i mean new New zealand um doesn't have a class action regime it's still using this ridiculous archaic representative action but at least australia since um i think 1998 has had um at state at various state levels a class action regime that's worked quite well um uh, I, I can't think of where uh, the class action regime has been applied against a pharmaceutical company, but um, uh, there, there may have been one. Um, but I'll share a little fun fact for, with, you, with you, Marco, and that is um, uh, the great sunny state of um, New South Wales is actually the most litigious state on the planet Earth, second only, okay, second only to California. Okay, so no, it is on a per capita basis. That's a little fun fact. But you, your point's well made is that the, the the class action regime and the lawyers who are class action lawyers act as a bit of a watchdog to ensure that these companies are, um, are, are not doing anything that um, – or, or, or hopefully watching a, a, as another layer that these companies aren't producing products that are going to hurt people.
1: Yeah. So I think the the problem with therapeutic goods is that um especially with drugs, is, it's very rare that a drug will have what you call a signature adverse event. Mm. So one example, a rare example of that is the so the AstraZeneca, the famous AstraZeneca vaccine had that very, 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 very small uh chance of causing a very, very particular and a very rare type of thrombosis, which kind of then uh Sent the entire rollout, uh, out the window, essentially, of that particular vaccine. Now, whether or not that was warranted is a different question. But the point is, that was kind of what you would call potentially a signature, a signature harm. Another example is, uh, well, that's not a therapeutic good, but like asbestos causes mesothelioma. That's a very kind of yeah. specific type. So you're exposed to a certain substance. You suffer from a certain adverse reaction, but by and large, what drugs do is they they don't have a signature effect; they don't have a specific adverse event that they directly cause. What they do is they increase the chances of other stuff happening. so yeah. a typical example was the a good example was the biox, so biox was this antiarthritis drug produced by Merck. And in the early 2000s, there was this huge class action in the United States that showed that Viox basically increased – statistically in in a significant in a statistically significant way increase the risk of heart failure the problem is if you're an individual it's very hard for you to say that it was Vioxx that caused your heart failure as opposed to any other stuff like I don't know maybe you have hypertension maybe you have high cholesterol you know maybe
0: maybe you're a smoker maybe you're a smoker maybe you drink
1: too much whatever like you know there's the the number it might even
0: just be genetic
1: Oh yeah so it's, it it is very difficult, however, if you aggregate the number of people mm. who do take the drug and you can show a pattern, then that is uh you know that increases the chances of a court being satisfied that um the cause because at the end of the day it's all a question of causation really mm. that, that, that that it is indeed the product that caused the harm and then that can therefore trigger. If you get, I mean, most of these things then get settled out of court, right? So biox yeah. settled for billions of dollars out of court because when you see that the, the huge companies, when they see that a case might be going south, they have an interest. Their, their, their interest is in, in settling because uh, you don't want to create a precedent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is true that aggregating claims uh, certainly increases the chances of uncovering potential um, risks that only emerge in the aggregate and not in individual cases.
0: And, and they're also after the effect, um, you know, whereas the FDA, the, the, the TGA in Australia, you know, their processes are in place there to try and avoid this harm occurring. Mm. Um, and you look, you've reminded me, I mean, we we're going back quite a long way in time. Uh, I mean, I think it was um the nineteen fifties or sixties, but there was a there was a medication for women who was suffering from um morning sickness um valilamide. And um it had a, a secondary, very adverse effect to to the to their unborn children. You know, someone would end up, you know, not having sort of limbs or deformed limbs as a result. You know but presumably that's another example of a drug that's gone through regulatory testing and and all of that process, yet unfortunately it's been released into the open market and marketed to to consumers who have used it and it and it's resulted in harm and that and that's where the system collapses
1: actually, actually no, it's interesting you make this example so regulatory um regulation of therapeutic goods of medicines in general is is not is a relatively historically recent phenomenon okay. so it started in the US in the early 20th century on the back of a um a, what what you would call a drug disaster so it was a cough medication that was imported from Germany and then in the US what the importers tried to do was uh they, they wanted to turn it into a syrup And they mixed it with a solvent that was highly toxic, and as a result of this, uh, it was called sulfanilamide. And as a result of this, a number of a number of people died. A number of people had huge adverse event, and that is what prompted the creation of the regulatory regime, the Food and Drug Administration, and the idea that you need before you distribute a product that has a therapeutic impact that wants to have a therapeutic impact, before you distribute that into the general population, you need to test it. Yes. Yeah. That led the U.S. to, in the 50s and 60s, as you say, not approve thalidomide for uh, uh, for uh, distribution in the United States, which is why there's been a very, just a handful of cases of people who got their hands on thalidomide in the United States, whereas in Europe it was a disaster, particularly in Germany. And the thalidomide crisis is what prompted the European community at the time to start developing strong regulatory pre-marketing uh, authorization procedures, which didn't exist at the time. So at the time it was quite loosely regulated. But on the back of thalidomide, that is when the whole thing started properly. Mm. And um I think that's also where medical product, medicines and pharmaceuticals started to take their own path in terms of, and, and, and kind of split up from general goods and become their own kind of special category that has these special regimes that require, uh, thorough th- testing before they are distributed. So every drug has to undergo clinical trials, right? right. And, a cli- and a clinical trial is, is a test in which I don't know if you know how that works, but essentially the double the, the principle of double blind clinical trials is you have yeah. scientists who don't know you have a group of scientists and then you have two groups of people, two groups of patients. One group gets the experimental drug, one groups, one group one group gets a placebo. <laughs> Nobody knows what they're getting, and the scientists themselves don't know which group is getting what. Then there is obviously a coordinator that knows all that, otherwise it's random um and the idea is that once you've undergone the whole the treatment course you look at the two groups and you make an assessment of safety and efficacy so you 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 look at the group who received the experimental drug and you see whether therapeutically there is an improvement compared to the placebo and then you look at whether there're side effects compared to the group that got the placebo and that's the in a nutshell that's how you make the assessment and then their clinical development requires you to do clinical trials on increasingly big. There's three stages and the third stage is on tens of thousands of people, right? So, uh, th- but the, the sixties and the thalidomide crisis is really the breaking point in which governments around the world are like, realize that as medicines become mass consumed goods, you do need to have some special systems in place to ensure that once they reach a broad consumer market, they are uh, as safe and effective as you can possibly get them to be, uh, knowing that there is no such thing as risk-free,
0: okay? Okay. Now, I want to stay on the topic of medicines. We will get into goods, um, mm-hmm. but let's just stay on the topic of medicines for a second. So there, there, I understand there's an Australian register of therapeutic mm-hmm. goods, um, Yeah that registers medicines into, into three categories, one being a registered medicine, second being a listed medicine, and the third one being an ass- assessed listed medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, are you able to kind of walk us through th- those three categories?
1: Yeah, so essentially um, the, the three categories, They. they I don't want to get into too, too many details, yeah. but uh, to make it, Essentially, what this means is that you have th- three different levels of a thoroughness of review. So yeah. the registered ones are the ones that have gone through the whole, uh, the full review and, blind, and
0: like the double blind testing. That
1: well, you, no, you they know. all have to. They, 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 they kind of all have to, but like there, there may be certain, uh, certain medicines that, um, that are, Available to uh, physicians under certain conditions, um, without having been fully reviewed or approved. So, for example, the, the, the fact is that you do have um, you do have situations that may warrant uh, patients receiving uh, drugs that aren't fully approved or drugs that aren't fully uh, reviewed. So that's what you call the compassionate use, okay? And the compassionate use allows physicians to um, distribute or to prescribe drugs to patients that have not been yet fully registered in the ARTG, so in the Australian Register for Therapeutic Goods. That is... For example, when someone is terminally ill or someone has like a particularly aggressive disease for which there is no other known therapeutic uh, course of action. So that's one, one thing. In terms of the various levels of license of, registr- of of registration that are available in the therapeutic goods, it's a combination of availability under certain circumstances and uh, risk factors. So certain medicines Warrant uh, rec- may require a lesser level of uh, of review in order for um, uh, Australian authorities to approve them for distribution. So it's it's kind mm-hmm. of a technical uh, differentiation. It is not. I, w- I, w- I would say at its core, any drug that goes into the j- just to make the, the the broader point, any drug that gets into the Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods has to have been reviewed by the by the, by, by, by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. And then okay. the level yeah. of review may vary.
0: Okay, now, uh, Michael, you made an interesting point just sort of earlier on that I wanted to pick up, and that is um, before it goes to the – it's registered, let's say, and it's gone through all the checking and all of that, of mm. course, you know, when drugs are being, you know, developed, um, the the pharmaceutical companies themselves or the inventors are going to need to, to do mm. their own testing is there is there a license requirement that they need to obtain from the TGA or, or or anyone else, or can they literally just produce a new new chemical compound and start applying it to patients?
1: No, there are um, so every country has a different leg- type of legislation, um, but by and large, um, this has been internationally harmonized so there is a there is a regulatory network called the international uh conference on harmonization for um the regulation of pharmaceutical products for human use it's a bit of a mouthful but basically it's it's um
0: for drug trials you know in yeah drug yeah drug yeah, trials. yeah it's called
1: yeah. ICH international yeah. conference on harmonization it's it's abbreviated as ICH and what they've developed among m- many other things is what's called good clinical practice yeah. good clinical practice is a set of rules that you need to as as a as a sponsor for a um, so manufacturer for example of a new uh, of a new drug there's a set of rules that you need to follow for the clinical trial to be ethically conducted. So, uh, and and ethically conducted means that you always have to have the best interest of the patients uh, at heart, right? So you, you, you're not, the point what what you want to avoid is situations like you know the 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 Nazi type of testing uh, of of and uh, using humans as guinea pigs. So there's a set of rules uh, underpinning clinical trials uh, that are quite stringent and they are internationally adopted and they've been developed at this uh, ICH uh, at the ICH. Which is a consortium of regulators and industry representatives. Okay. Then there's separate instruments such as the Helsinki Declaration, that uh, obviously is an international is 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 a is a is an international uh, document that uh, essentially outlines what the limitations are for uh, anyone who wishes to um, undertake research that involves human participants. So there's ethical limitations that are quite stringent. So it's not like you can just take a molecule and go and just distribute it and see. There's like very, very uh, heavily regulated protocols on uh, what kind of structures are um, uh, you, you need to have, what kind of systems need to be in place, what kind of protections for the patients that are involved need to be in place, et cetera? So it's not, no, no, it's not like, uh, it's not like the, the TGA will accept any kind of data that comes with no questions asked. Like the data needs to have, it needs to be gathered in observance, observing certain stringent protocols that are internationally regulated.
0: Yeah, I've been reading uh, Michael um, Pollan's uh, book called "How to Change Your Mind," um, which uh, sort of uh, are you familiar with that book? He's 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 kind of delved into the history of the the psychedelic drugs. Oh, uh, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and and in his in his book, he he provides a a, a great narration of uh, the clinical research into areas like uh, LSD and MDMA, uh, psilocybin, uh, all in the lead up to uh, the early 70s with the war on drugs that then made them prohibited um, uh, products or pro- prohibited compounds to, to possess and use. And, and that brought that whole research area to a, a grinding halt, in, at least in the US and Canada, uh, although, um, from what I understand now, having looked at it in a bit more detail, um, you know, uh, university hospitals like uh, John Hopkins, etc., uh, uh, are now doing quite large double-blind um, research into the therapeutic benefits of mm-hmm. some of these um, some of these drugs, yeah. uh, and the data that's coming out of it, particularly around areas for treating anxiety and depression, um, seems to be um, quite promising um but uh, again i mean presumably at some point in time uh, uh if if they can get off the prohibited list as um as effectively narcotics they could then be used um as medicines um i guess that's the pathway
1: yeah no that's that's i think the key and as you as you were saying the key is how how you do these experiments, right? So one of the one of the the things that were a bit horrible about the way which LSD was was used in the you know 60s 70s was that there was literally a um, I mean I mentioned the, the 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 Nazi regime, but of course the Nazis were not the only ones who um in, h- historically have uh, used humans as guinea pigs to you know test the effects of certain uh, of certain compounds on 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 humans um i i think that that whole research into uh, LSD and other psychedelic drugs was tainted by that background of uh essentially uh, unethical experimentation that happened uh decades ago mm-hmm. and that has really set the research back decades for for decades because actually now that these types of studies are being conducted ethically so you know observing the ethical principles of the declaration of helsinki and following the good clinical practice mm-hmm. guidelines then of course you start seeing that um you know there as you say there may be some positive therapeutic effects when it comes to um the treatment of certain uh, mental diseases.
0: So particularly, particularly when it's being done properly, because I mean, no, from exactly. what I, what, yeah, because what I understand I is, that, is that, 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 but that's the
1: key, yeah. right? The key yeah. is that, and, and it goes back to your earlier question as to, you know, how do you do this? Well, there are uh, very heavily, uh, regulated protocols that, uh, uh, anyone who engages in clinical research needs to follow and, The reality is that if you don't, that, um, you know, can expose you to liability, uh, civil but criminal as well, but more uh, even if we simply focus on the, the process that leads to the approval of a therapeutic goods, it, it prevents the the approval from happening because if the data that is gathered is not gathered uh, properly, uh, that data cannot uh, be used for the purpose of uh, issuing uh, an authorization for distribution. So it is it is in the interest of the companies, if you want as well, to follow uh, to follow, uh, the protocols and to follow, uh, the, the proper processes because otherwise that, pr- that, that kind of has a negative impact on, on, on their investments because they're not going to be able to distribute a product that wasn't a- appropriately tested.
0: Well, well, yeah. And of course, there's a lot of money at stake because, you know, they, they pump a lot of money into, into research. Uh, the product's not worth anything unless it can get yeah. approval and then be marketed and sold. So. That, that's yeah, when, when suddenly I mean, it becomes... That's not, to
1: say, that's not to say that there isn't, like, there are moral hazards occurring. There are, um, you know, there are situations in which, uh you know, companies have cut corners. So, for instance, I was talking about the Vioxx case uh, mm-hmm. earlier on. That is a case in which Merck basically did not disclose a study that they had, that, that, that they were aware of for years before um, actually uh, the class action uh for, you know, heart failure was, you know, started. And one of the points uh, that was made was that they were aware of certain side effects and they didn't disclose them. So it's not like, you know, I, I'm not trying to make the point that, you know, everyone behaves impeccably, but Uh, because they don't, and that's just human nature, otherwise we wouldn't need laws and regulations. But, uh, but this is to say, but I just wanted to say that there are quite strong protocols, and particularly when it comes to pharmaceutical products and vaccines. Um uh, they are very stringent and they are some of the these are some of the the most regulated and the most monitored products that we uh, that we use so when yeah. when 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 authorities say something is safe uh I think it's important to recognize that safe doesn't mean risk free but it is overall safe and it has undergone through a very thorough process of testing, including you know, you were talking about the fact that you had three shots of the COVID vaccine. Mm. I just very recently had my fourth one. Yeah. COVID vaccine. How are you feeling?
0: Are you feeling okay? Yeah, yeah just a <laughs> bit of a sore
1: arm for a couple yeah. of days, but nothing, yeah. nothing more than that. Mm. Um, but, but it is important to note that, you know, these are safe, but safe doesn't mean risk free, which is why it is, you know, that, and that needs to be acknowledged, I think, because especially when you are trying to roll out something as, widely as a vaccine it is the 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 risk of side effects obviously increases because it's not like a targeted medicine that you're Mm -hmm. only going to give to a certain segment of the population you're giving it to everyone yeah when you do when you do give something to everyone the risk of something going wrong obviously increases uh which is why you know it's important to have systems in place like you know compensation plans and um other such uh, remedial. So I think in Australia, I think in New Zealand, you're using your. You have a general accident compensation plan. Uh, well, we've
0: got uh, in New Zealand, and I believe it to be the case we've got a unique system that hasn't yeah. been replicated anywhere else in the world. Now, either we're onto something that no one else has been able to click onto to, um, how genius this is, or it's horribly wrong because <laughs> no one else will do it. Um, but yeah, so we have a no fault, um, uh, accident, uh, compensation yeah. regime, which applies to medical malpractice as well. So, yeah. Um, and,
1: it, and it would apply to, and it would apply to, you know, um, uh, COVID, COVID injury, COVID vaccine related injuries.
0: Yeah. So, which, which yeah. makes New Zealand probably the, the best jurisdiction in the world to test stuff. Um, yeah, in a know, way, knowing, knowing that you can't get sued. Um, <laughs> Yeah. but
1: no, but actually, it's interesting you make that point because, say, in Australia, Australia doesn't did not have any no fault compensation plan whatsoever for mm. any product, making it, by the way, an out, an outlier in OECD countries because most OECD countries have some form of no fault compensation plan, particularly for vaccines. Okay, yeah. so yeah. because the idea and it's it's you know it's the idea of the basic idea of mutualism, mm. uh, you know, I ask everyone to do something which protects them but also protects the general community so i need to be able to protect the individual so in the rare rare events of something going wrong for an individual i need to give them some form of safety net so that's almost it's
0: almost like a social contract doesn't it
1: yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Australia was a noticeable outlier in not having any such thing. So New Zealand mm-hmm. has done it. You know, it's the it's the other extreme. You have the no yeah. compensation plan for any accident. Yeah. So Australia has developed a, a bespoke, specific COVID nineteen uh, injury uh, COVID nineteen vaccine uh, claim scheme. It's called. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it is there precisely because, you know, uh, it's been rolled out massively. It's been mandated by a number of states in a number of, for a number of, uh, professions. Uh, WA where I am, Western Australia had, uh, possibly one of the most, one of the stringest mandatory vaccination policies in the world, like 75, mm-hmm. it was mandated for 75% of the workforce, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah. Um, And so of course you need to have some kind of safety net because, uh, you need to be able, you know, to, 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 to give back if someone has an injury. But back to the point you made, which is you can't get sued. Well, actually even before Australia implemented a no-fault compensation scheme Mm -hmm. company, could not be sued because that was in the procurement contracts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Australia being one of the vast majority of countries in the world that did not produce these vaccines, so we had a production site for the AstraZeneca one, but that quickly went out the window because the vaccine, the the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine was uh, stopped due to the concerns around the thrombosis uh, side effect uh, but we don't produce mRNA vaccines like the Pfizer one, the Moderna one and so we have to import them
0: uh, I, think I think they're produced in India. That's, that's what I understood. A lot of well, were, yeah. well
1: they're, they're mo- they were they were mostly produced in the United States right. okay. and some in Europe. But now, I think now the the, the production the, the production is scaling up. And when when you need to scale up production, you have to go to countries like India, for example. Because, yeah. well, first of all, they have a very highly developed uh, pharmaceutical industry, so they do have kind of the, the facilities but also you just can't do it in one country like even if it's the united states if you need billions of people to be vaccinated you can't just do it there it's yeah. too expensive it's too it's and there's also the capacity is limited but the interesting thing is australia like pretty much every other country that imported mrna vaccines uh introduced um Liabil- exemptions from liability clauses in their contracts. So in the procurement contracts, all had clauses whereby if something went wrong and individuals started suing for injury, hmm. uh, the government would pay the bill, not yeah. the not the not the not the manufacturer.
0: So, so now, now, since the government was in, uh, was indemnifying the pharmaceutical companies against... Like yeah, and,
1: yeah, and so I think the no-fault compensation plan is like is the step forward. You're like, okay, well, if the government's going to foot the bill, you might as well remove the element of litigation and having to prove defect and fault or whatever you need to prove under... In So negligence claims that for therapeutic goods are almost impossible because proving that a manufacturer was at fault is really diabolical. There's too much of an asymmetry of information between consumers and patients and manufacturers, So, which is why we have... Consumer laws that include normally things like product liability. Product liability is, is a strict liability regime where what you have to show is that a product is defective. So it's below the safety that the public can generally, is generally entitled to expect. And there is a causal link between the harm and the defect. Now, um, in, in, the problem there is that proving th- that a vaccine is defective is almost as diabolical, diabolically hard as proving that a manufacturer is at fault. And so what no-fault compensations plan do is that they remove the the requirement to prove that a vaccine was defective, and all you have to show is that you took the vaccine and that you had an adverse event that was linked to the vaccine. And then some plans, like the New Zealand one, I think, and certainly others um, around the world, are open ended okay so you have to make essentially you have to make a case that on a balance of probabilities but it's not as stringent as the civil uh, as the civil requirements you know so so in, in in a negligence claim you have to make the case that on a balance of probabilities the breach of the defendant uh, caused the harm in, in these situations it's more of a you have to make a prima facie case that uh, the vaccine caused you harm Right then you get it. but other countries like australia on on the other hand adopt a different type of approach, which is a closed list of course it's it's a list that is that gets um, uh updated as uh, new data comes in. but essentially, if you can show that you took the vaccine and you have an adverse event that is in, on the list, you automatically become eligible for the for the for the compensation so these okay. are two different types of approach for the same thing.
0: Would that um, span out? Because, I mean, we have had in New Zealand, uh, and I'm not sure about Australia, but there have been some limited examples where uh, the reaction's been fatal. People have have actually died. Um, Not large numbers that I'm aware of. um, But would that lead to, in Australia, the the family bringing some form of compensation claim uh, for the estate?
1: um interesting that's an interesting one so uh the 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 injury claims is for the is for the patient not for the mm. not for the family mm. i think so the, the 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 cases in which there has been a fatal um adverse reaction in australia i believe all involved uh, or almost all involved the astrazeneca vaccine so it was right. a thromb- the, yep. the thrombosis yeah now, there are other social security mechanisms that can assist families in those situations. The mm. compensation scheme itself is actually targeted at individuals, not their families as much. Yeah, sure. So it is – and and that is a limitation in a way, mm. uh, of course. But uh, I think the point is particularly because the, the vast majority of adverse events tend to be um, temporary – Or, you know, they they can have a, they can be more or less prolonged in time, but would they all tend to resolve? So like the, you know, the heart um, uh, issues that can be linked to the Pfizer vaccine, for example, or Mm. the Moderna one, they all tend to resolve within a certain Period of time. However, during that period of time, you may lose income, you may lose a manage, you may lose a whole bunch of things. So that's what the compensation scheme tends to uh, focus on. So the fact that it's literally providing a safety net when you're essentially disabled for a certain period of time. If you're disabled permanently, there are also other schemes that kick in in Australia. So like there's the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Yeah, uh, and so, so that's a different kind of. So, so depending on the gravity, I think the point of the no-fault compensation scheme was really uh, providing a safety net for those who uh, were experiencing a serious uh, adverse event that had a serious impact for a discrete period of time.
0: Okay. Hey, so Marco, before we move off uh, the COVID vaccine, because uh, I want to get into the area of medical devices, um, mm. and I want to pick your brain on that one. But before we do, just uh, just a couple of points. Um, one is... Uh, we're able to now stand back, um, you know, where are we? We're in October 2022, um, you know, 20 months in from, I, I, I guess, the, you know, 22 months in from the pandemic being announced, uh, etc., what's your assessment on a scorecard if we did a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of the Australian regulatory response to approving the various vaccines? I mean, did the regular, I know it was an emergency and I know it's unprecedented, but did it, you know, did they perform?
1: I think the, so I think the regulatory regime in Australia, but I would say around the world mostly, performed remarkably well under the level of pressure that it was operating. Yeah. So it is easy today to, you know, cast, you know, an eye, your eye back and be like, ah, they were rushed here or they didn't do well enough there. Mm. But I think it's important to remember where we were at in early 2020 and in mid 2020 and when the first wave was really, 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 uh, hitting Europe and the United States incredibly hard. And, and, and the fact that, you know, we were able to have a number of different vaccines within such a short period of time is, is remarkable. And the fact that, uh, none of them really carried, uh, um, Risks of serious adverse events above what was still, I think, a marginally small uh, number of circumstances. And I'm talking about. And I have to say, yeah. it's important here to distinguish between people who are healthy and people versus people who have like pre-existing, f- such as like immunocompromised
0: conditions. Yeah,
1: because under uh, people yeah. for, with, for for a lot of people with underlying conditions, uh, the the pandemic is actually a lot worse now almost than it was then because they can't have the vaccine. And so they, they are, I, I know for, I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm am i I'm an academic. I have certain students who have been essentially locked in their houses for uh well, two, two years now over. And, and, and they have no realistic prospect of ever coming out because they know that if they get COVID that can be fatal to them given their underlying condition. and, their underlying condition is also what prevents them from being vaccinated because they have certain risks of uh, adverse events that are so egregious that they, they actually can do it. So I think it's important not to, you know, fall into the trap of like what you would call an ableist uh, narrative of, of, of the pandemic. But let's say that by and large, I think the vaccines have been developed at breakneck speed and they are remarkably safe and effective and the fact that the AstraZeneca potential fatal side effect was picked up so quickly um and was you know i think a testament to how uh, well these the the these systems work and i think you know if you want to segue into medical devices i think it if there was ever like a, 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 you know if there was ever proof that we do have Systems that are not perfect, but by and large work. Yeah. The COVID vaccine was probably the biggest stress test that any uh, regulatory regime has ever has ever endured.
0: Yeah, and and look, I, I, I guess the, the the point that I'm I'm quite keen to get your um, view on is that it's all very well the pharmaceuticals producing a product like in this case a yeah. vaccine, but the regulations there and the regulatory approval process. Ordinarily, as you as you've told us, and rightly so, can take years. Mm. But in this case, it was done at 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 an accelerated space pace. Um, And and do you is is it your view? Do you feel that looking back on it, because you know hindsight's always twenty twenty. You know, we've got the the benefit of, of it. Is that the Australian regulatory regime responded to the The emergency that it was uh, in an efficient way and and certified it and 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 approved it got it and it was then available for distribution.
1: Yeah, so um, just to just to clarify a point that you've made. So my answer to your question is yes, I think it did. Um, In terms of like why, how on earth did uh, these vaccine come to uh, exist? in such a short amount of time when it normally takes. So a new vaccine can take up to 15 years to be developed, mm-hmm. from development to 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 roll out. So how on earth did we do that in a year? I think there's a little bit of myth, mythology around this that needs to be mm-hmm. addressed. The reality is that often it takes this long because um, it can be really hard to run clinical trials, mm-hmm. It can be hard to find volunteers. It can be hard to find funding. Okay, so um, in this particular situation, we had endless supply of volunteers and unlimited funding. Everyone was pouring money into this particular into this particular research. So when you have unlimited funding and unlimited volunteers for clinical trials, that s- dramatically decreases the amount of time that is necessary. Mm. So. And that has nothing to do with how thorough the tests are. It's just that you're able to do them much quicker because you, the, the 15 years that it normally takes, it's not like you use, you're, you're productively using time for 15 years. There are gaps of like two, three years in which nothing happens because you're just waiting. Whereas in this case, again, this was not, this didn't happen. The second thing is that there are circumstances in which Regulators can, uh, the way, what they say is fast track, uh, you can fast track the approval of a drug. And that's, uh, you know, a, a pandemic is the obvious case. So when there is a, a disease that is threatening a, a large, um, portion of the population. Fast tracking doesn't mean you just take a gamble. Fast tracking means that you look at, um, you still need to have, like, at the front end, uh, um, Data that satisfies the regulator uh, on tens of thousands of participants. So for example, I think the AstraZeneca one before it was approved had was had been tested on thirty to forty thousand people. Uh, and uh similar numbers I think worked for the uh Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. Fast track simply means that you actually make a preliminary assessment on the basis of this initial data. You roll out the vaccine, and there are stringent conditions. You know you have to monitor, and then you have to keep doing clinical trials as the vaccine is rolled out. And the TGA, or so the regulator, performs what you call a rolling review, and that's what, for instance, allowed the thrombosis uh, side effects uh, linked to the Astrazeneca vaccine to be picked up so quickly, and, and and acted upon so quickly. So yes, I think I think the regulatory regimes in Australia, but across around the world worked work remarkably well under the level of pressure that they were operating during the the pandemic. And
0: and, and I guess in a way the, the the lessons or the examples from that may serve us well into the future because of course the, I mean, I, I, I don't know what your view, I'm keen to hear what it is, but I don't think this pandemic's actually over. Um I mean we're still seeing in New Zealand daily cases uh into the thousands. Um and of course the the virus COVID-19 is um, the variants uh, are changing. So there are new variants that are developing, and some of the signals coming out of particularly Europe is that um, some of these variants are uh, particularly able to evade uh, immune responses and quite possibly the vaccines that we've all had. So we may be looking at having to go for completely new rounds of uh, of vaccination.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the vaccine I had 2 days ago was a bivalent, so it was the mm-hmm. original uh, strand and uh, and then there's some specific omicron uh, protection. Now, how how effective that will be, uh, I guess we'll see. But um no, number one, the pandemic is definitely not over. Uh there's and the waves keep going up and down. I think we're going towards a normalization of these waves um and i think that it is not entirely um it, it is actually quite possible that what we're going to be looking at is a seasonal vaccine for uh, covid much like we have for the flu yeah. uh and whether it's going to be yearly or or uh, you know Biannual, I don't know. Will, uh, that that will depend. But I I obviously the virus we haven't we haven't defeated the virus. The virus is now in the community globally, and 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 we're going to have to deal with that, which is quite concerning, particularly for individuals who are immunocompromised, because mm-hmm. uh, it's it that 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 means there is a long-term issue of how are we going to protect these people. But from a regulatory perspective, I suspect. What pretty much every country has is a special regime for the flu vaccine. So the flu vaccine, you don't need to undergo the same level of testing that you would need for a new, a brand new vaccine. So all you do is essentially you add new strains to existing ones, and that is a very speedy process. And essentially, every country in the world has a special has a special regulatory um, pathway for those vaccines because you need them on a on a yearly basis. And I think it is. Quite conceivable that COVID vaccines will end up having the same type of uh, parallel kind of regulatory regime, whereby, like, if all you're doing is adding new strands, adding new, sorry, adding new uh, new streams and adding new uh, variants to an existing vaccine, um, the, the the regulatory review will be essentially minimal, uh, yeah. because we already know it's an ex. The point is, it's a technology that exists and it is well established. We know it is safe and effective. All we do is we we just make it. Effective against a new a new version of the same of the same disease.
0: Yep, no, fascinating. Um, and look, just lastly before we um uh, move off medicines, um, uh, it did occur to me before I was just thinking about um, and I've mentioned the FDA, um, and, and and the FDA being sort of somewhat more risk adverse. Um. You can buy uh, over the counter and, and use in the United States uh, melatonin, but in, in New Zealand it's a prescription drug. Um, now I don't know what the position is with melatonin in Australia. Right? Can you can you just buy that at the chemist's warehouse without a, a prescription, or is that is is that just still regarded as being a bit too risky?
1: Um, so melatonin is, I think, in Australia. No, Australia is like New Zealand. It mm. it, 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 it is. So Australia generally is quite strict when it comes to, uh, medicines. Mm. So even things like topical, uh, steroid creams are okay. very, t- tend to be, um, prescription only. Um, and so melatonin, I'm fairly sure that the regime is uh, the same as in New Zealand. So it's prescription only. Um
0: I g I guess look, maybe the you know, America my perception is is that they they are becoming more liberal around therapeutics. I mean a, a good example probably is their um cannabis uh, industry, both in uh America and in Canada, a multi-billion dollar yeah. industry producing um uh products, some of which I guess you would call as being therapeutic. Um uh, whereas, uh, both in, in New Zealand and Australia, it's only been in recent times that doctors could prescribe municipal cannabis products, particularly yeah, so look, for those struggling with, uh, opioid, you know, that, that who, who can't take opioids.
1: Well, can, cannabis is, the, the, the therapeutic use of cannabis is, is, you know, is, a, is a very, uh, kind of specific field and, and there is actually abundant evidence, like, you know, overwhelming evidence that, um, in, in certain clinical circumstances, cannabis has a significant, significantly positive therapeutic uh, impact on patients. But I think generally you're correct in saying that the FDA tends to have a more liberal approach, uh, a more, it, it's, it's almost like because it is, I, I mean, my take on this, uh, having, uh, you know, looked at these, these, these issues for a number of years now is that once again, if you look at the regulatory regime, uh, in, 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 in separate segments, the FDA and the American regime tends to be more permissive. So there is indeed a greater Propensity to risk, okay? So you, you know, we're, we're, we're keen to, people should have products available. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the threshold is lower that you need to meet in order. On the other hand, if you look at it holistically, there's the fact that there's so much more litigation occurring in America, and litigation is so much more accessible. Um, uh, particularly, not, not generally speaking, but particularly when it comes to these particular goods, given the, 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 the kind of, mm-hmm. the, the way in which it is structured. Uh, that you have to factor that in so overall the Amer- the American approach is one that looks at you know give more opportunities at the front end and 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 also provide potentially more remedies or more opportunities for causes of action at the back end, whereas the European one traditionally is a lot more like let 's prevent let's try to prevent accidents from happening in the first place mm. and then you know the 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 opportunities to litigate uh are not as uh, diffused and not as available as as, as in America.
0: Okay, Michael, well, that's probably a good segue into, because I did want to talk about medical devices before yeah. we wrap up. And, and the one was the, the, the pelvic mesh litigation. Yeah. Um, um that seems to be uh picking up on your point that exact point. Um you know when something goes horribly wrong. I mean what can you tell us about about the the pelvic mesh litigation?
1: Yeah, so I think I think the importance so there's a premise to make here. So in Australia pelvic mesh is a, is a so a pelvic mesh is an implantable device. So it is an implantable device typically implanted on um women for conditions uh so the ones that were um they formed the object of litigation in Australia were, um, meshes that were used for pelvic organ prolapse or stress urinary incontinence. So these are mildly, essentially minor conditions. They're, they're more, they tend to be more of a, you know, they can be, they, they can be serious, but by and large, they tend to be more like a discomfort or like they, they affect quality of life more than anything else. Hmm. Um, and, and a pelvic mesh, is essentially it's, it's it's a mesh that you implant and that keeps everything together essentially mm-hmm. and 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 therefore prevents the prolapse or prevents the incontinence. Now what happened in Australia and actually across the globe really is that it turned out that these a lot of these uh meshes uh particularly the ones that were imported by Johnson and Johnson into Australia or by and and produced by um imported and produced in Australia by a firm called Ethicon um the, the the problem was that they carried a significant increased risk of chronic pain and the and and the and what happened is that thousands literally thousands of women who had these uh who had these meshes implanted for minor conditions ended up having their lives ruined essentially yeah. because uh number one they were not aware of the risks the risks were not acceptable they would not have uh th- there were not risks that for a product of that kind uh, the general public would have accepted as 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 you know uh reasonable. And third, the issue is there is no real remedy in in uh therapeutically speaking, because in the vast majority of cases you can't remove it. So it's just gonna be there forever. Uh, now sure. what happened yeah. there? What happened is that we in for medicines We've talked about the fact that there's this really, really well-developed regulatory regime that with very thorough pre-marketing testing that really comes from the early 20th century in the United States and the mid-20th century in Europe on the back of drug disasters. The problem with medical devices is that for a number of reasons, that historically they have the they haven't developed as therapeutic goods worthy of a separate category of regulatory attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they have by and large been packaged into just consumer goods. And the fact is that medical devices, when we think of medical devices, we normally, you know, you can think of stuff that is really fancy, like I don't know, pacemakers or other such things. But medical devices are a uh huge category that includes anything from band-aids, condoms, um, prosthetics, implants. So everything is a medical, anything yeah. that you use uh, for a therapeutic, uh, diagnostics, treatment, monitoring, uh, is uh can be qualified as a medical device. And they're regulated in different classes. So every class is yeah. a different type of attention. Now, the problem is that, as I said about medicines, What's, what I said about medicines is true about devices. Australia mostly imports devices, oh. and a lot of the devices imported came come from the European Union and the European Union has had a huge fail failure a uh, regulatory failure when it comes to medical devices because essentially what it did is that it uh, did not create a regulatory regime like for medicines, but it Put the regulation of good, of medical devices into the bigger bag of regulation of goods, consumer goods. So the way it happens is you have a broad legislation that gives goals, gen- general goals, and then you have what are called notified bodies. These are in typically private companies that issue quality assurance certificates. So a manufacturer will go to a notified body and say, like, hey, I have this new product. Mm. And you just, you know, test it against certain standards. And then if you're satisfied that, you know, it, it meets the standards, give us the quality assurance certificate. And the problem is if you, if, if you kind of outsource that to an industry and their core business is performing quality assurance – the risk of moral hazard is huge. And just to give an example that is relevant to Mesh, um in 2018, there was this huge scandal called the Implant Files. So there's a group of journalists called the International uh, Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the ones who uncovered the Panama Papers. Yeah. Uh, for So they called, they, they had this huge investigation called the Implant Files. And there was this one, uh, Dutch journalist that uh, did this incredible thing. So she, she bought a mandarin net from the supermarket. Right. She cut it out in a way that was fancy looking. And it was literally like the, 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 you know, the red mandarin nets that you Yeah, know, you
0: go to, go to, you go to the grocery store and you go into the fruit section and there's the, there's yeah. the mandarins that are in a net. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Exactly. So she took the mandarins out. She cut the mesh, the, the, the net in a way that looked fancy. And then she produced a bogus technical file, and she introduced herself with a few colleagues to a not one of these notified bodies to ask, you know, we have developed this cool new mesh, would we get approved? And there's and and the reality is that they had they 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 received the preliminary approval um from a notified body on the basis of the fact that, oh yeah, many similar products already exist on the market, and therefore I don't see this as an issue now that was obviously they didn't market the net, but they did that to show how lax the regulatory system was and these meshes that were uh, uh that distributed in Australia all came from uh, uh this european very weak system, Mm -hmm. regulatory system. So I think what I'm trying to say is that the problem with medical devices is that they do, they are, they can be as invasive and they can have as uh, dramatic an impact on the life of patients as medicines do, but for mm-hmm. historical reasons, they have escaped the level of scrutiny that medicines have, on the other hand, gained very early on in the piece, and it is only now, I think, that we are moving towards a much more thorough and a much more, you know, close attention to uh, pre-marketing, pre-distribution requirements for for devices.
0: Yeah. Hey, Mark, I wanted to thank you. Grazie for joining me on the uh, Law Down Under podcast. And look, this has been a fascinating deep dive into uh, health law, but also, th- you know, therapeutic goods. Um, you've, uh, you've given us a lot of insights. There's a lot there to, to take in. I really appreciate it. Um, and look, I, I hope that we can, we can keep in contact because that's, uh, that there's some topics there that I'd actually really like to get into in more detail with you at a, at a later time. So thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, absolutely. If you want to chat about devices more, in more detail, yeah. whatever, any any time. Thank yeah, you.
0: Yeah, no, much. no, absolutely. And it's been, been really good. So look, enjoy the rest of your day and thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at Paterson.co.nz. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N. Dot co dot nz thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law its application and the future of the law here down under